0: So the uh, slide is up there. God's living in active word. You're going to be looking at Hebrews 4, 11 to 13. Just keep that open. Let me read it in a bit. Well, I read of a man who uh, went to an art gallery and uh, he was seen taking great interest in the exhibits and paintings and whatnot. And so he examined the finer detail of all the works, all the brush strokes, and uh, he looked from different angles and perspectives at these large works of art, and he seemed to be taken by them, because he spent a lot of time doing that. But then as he was leaving, he said to the art director these words, he said, I'm sorry to say that uh, I'm not all that impressed. I just don't uh, get a lot out of these paintings. You know, in some ways, he said, I've seen better. And so the art director was a bit taken aback by his comments. And as you can imagine, he was upset about it. And he said to the man, you know, sir, it is not we who judge the painting. It's the painting who judges us. You see, these paintings are the artist's impressions and thoughts and views of everyday people and life. Kind of neat when we look at it that way. And I would suggest that the same is true about the Word of God. There have been those over the years who have criticized God's Word, still do, who have dismissed its teachings and its wisdom. And um, yet it is not we who judge God's Word, the Bible. It is the Bible who judges the heart and reveals to us who we truly are in a way that nothing else can. No amount of psychology, no amount of philosophy can do, can only do what the Bible can do. And that's where I'm going this morning. We're going to be looking at a short segment from the book of Hebrews. You've heard the old joke about that uh, book, Hebrews. It's what. Uh, Wives use as a biblical basis to tell their husband that they must make the coffee in the morning. Right? You've heard, you've heard that one. Yeah. So obviously somebody didn't back there. <laughs> you never know about that one. But anyway, we're looking at Hebrews this morning. Uh, so turn there with me, and I'm just going to get the scripture up on the screen. Just going to make sure that I have what I need here. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to be reading 11 to 13, Hebrews 4. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Just a few verses, but boy, are they ever loaded and packed with stuff. We're going to try to unpack that this morning. So in reading the Old Testament, we learn that the Israelites failed to enter the promised land. God made them, his people, a promise that they had this wonderful land ahead of them. A land flowing with milk and honey and he took them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Sinai Desert on the verge of the land and then, no, they didn't enter it. They failed to go in. Why? Well, basically because of a lack of faith. A lack of faith in what? A lack of faith in God's promises. And since God's promises are his word, we can say that the Israelites failed to enter their rest because they, like so many other people today, failed to believe the word of God, his promises, his assurances, that he meant good and not evil, and that he did right by them and not wrong. And this kind of harkens back to the Garden of Eden when God said to the first couple, you may eat of all the fruit of the trees. And if we kind of imagine the garden, there's probably zillions of trees. There's probably lots of trees, right? You can eat fruit from all these trees, but not the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Clear instruction. Fair warning, right? God warned them that if they ate of that tree, that they would die. And then the serpent came to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 and he tricked her. He tricked her. We read over that passage and it's it's very clear that he manipulates what the Lord said. He tricked her. He said, did God really say that you wouldn't die? Sorry, that you would die? Did he really say that? You won't die. God only says this because he doesn't want you to eat of the fruit so that... You you know, you won't become like him, having knowledge of good and evil. So he kind of tricks her, makes her look at God's instruction in a different way, right? And so Eve bit down and then Adam, and now we have all the problems we have. We have the mess of sin and all that, right? Thanks a lot, guys, right? But you know, we would have done it too. We would have done it too. Listen, it's the doubt that is put on the Word of God that leads us to stray from the will of God. It's the doubt that is put on the Word of God that always leads us to stray from the will of God for our lives. It's a satanic strategy that is as old as the hills or at least as old as the garden, right? It's been around. And this small section I want to concentrate on today from Hebrews 4, verses 11 to 13, just three verses ties into that thought. The author says here that the word of God is living and active and because it is also trustworthy, he says, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their disobedience. Who is he referring to? And he says there he's talking about the Israelites, God's chosen people. He's talking about them who doubted God, the promises of their good God. As I said, they failed to heed His instruction, failed to abide by it. They said, the Lord has only brought us through this desert to kill us. Remember that? We read, we read that in Exodus, right? Uh, the Lord has only brought us through this desert and we're going to die. We'll never get out of this alive unless we go back to Egypt. At least we had something to eat there. At least we didn't falter or fail. Man, did they ever have short memories, right? (laughs) And as a result, they didn't enter the Promised Land. At least that generation didn't. They went around and around and around the wilderness for 40 years. Listen, that's that's a long time to be wrong about the Word of God. 40 years. And the same can happen to us. The Bible says God's Word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But we can, but we can ignore that. No one here, of course, right? No one here would dare ignore that, right? <laughs> right, right, okay. Right. But people do ignore God's word. And they say, you know what, I can study this and I can look into that. I can read about this on the internet and I can watch television. I can read the paper. You know, I can get my spiritual stuff. I know somebody who says, I don't have to read the Bible. There's so much spiritual stuff on Facebook, right? You know, wow, God God must be, oh, thank you. Thank you for creating Facebook, right? <laughs> So people go to Facebook, and that's where they get their Bible. And they may say as well, you know what? Besides all that, I I really don't understand God's Word, so I don't feel like reading it. And so over time, the Bible, God's Word gets kind of pushed to the side, and it gets relegated to what I call a a once-in-a-while glance. Just every once in a while, we'll we'll, we'll crack it open and look at it. Where it's no longer in the forefront of our minds, so that it's no longer in the forefront of our lives. There's a saying that the first generation of Christians have the Bible in their heart. Second generation have it in their head. The third generation say, What's the Bible? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. The third say, you know, I have a Bible on, on my shelf. And that's a harrowing experience for most parents because they want their kids, we want our kids, not just to have God's Word in the house, but to have it in their hand and then to trickle 18 inches down into their heart. Right? That's where we want it to be. It's only God's Word, as we said, that reveals to us who we really are. And sometimes, I think you would agree, sometimes that hurts. And that hurts big. But we need that. Psychology and listen... I have a very high view of Christian psychology. I've studied it, okay? It can tell us a lot about our personalities and habits, antecedents, uh, pattern of thinking. And philosophy can give us an understanding of theories and how people look at the world and their views and their thoughts about the world and things as such. But but God's word goes much, much deeper to reveal to us who we truly are and who we should be before other people, but mostly who we need to be before Holy God, right? And more, there is power in God's word, right? There's power in God's word to change us and to shape our lives. When we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit does something to the words that we read. He illuminates them and he energizes them and he empowers them to convict us. And there's power power there it is a text unlike any other the bible doesn't replace human knowledge it directs it and it corrects it right so when we get off track the bible shows us what we did wrong and it shows us how we can get back on track and it shows us the way for righteous living and we need that in our lives because even though we are redeemed christians we are also fallen creatures At the same time, we kind of have these two natures that are dueling within us. That's why we have trouble sometimes thinking and acting in ways that God would have us. It's the whole Galatians 5 thing. And there's that tension, right? There's that that, that tension of who we are and who God is and what he wants us to be. And we live in the middle of that tension on a daily basis. But what is it? What is it about the B-I-B-L-E? What is it about the Bible that makes it so vital and unique so that we must simply pay attention to it? Well, first I want to say that it's God's very word to us. That is why. That's the first reason why. It is God's very word to us. We don't have to go up on a mountainside and uh, wait to be hit by a bolt of lightning to hear from God, right? (laughs) I mean, that would probably be the end of us, so it's probably not a good idea to do that. But we can pick up our Bible. It's a lot more practical and a lot more safer, right? So we can pick up our Bible. And the Bible wasn't written... By people who were kind of off somewhere on a weekend retreat and they shared notes. That's not really how it happened, right? It was written by God through human agency, yes, but humans who were led along by God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit. Hard to fathom how exactly, but that is what happened. I want to show another, um, passage up on the screen. Second Peter. Let's look at Second Peter. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, through humans, sorry, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that is a great scripture to commit to memory. I mean, we can still recognize the personality, the grammar, the nuances of each writer. Paul is Paul. When you read Paul's letters, so when you go to 1 Thessalonians, or you go to Galatians, Romans, there's, in the Greek, there is a common style and pattern so that they would say, this is the same author, right? So Paul is Paul, Peter's Peter, Moses is Moses, Jude was Jude, and yet it's a unified book. 66 books, but one unifying theme. The Bible claims, it claims to be the word of God. And it was given to us so that we may know him and know how we are to respond to his self-revelation to us. The early church and then generations of Christians throughout Christendom believed that what we read and what we teach every Sunday is God's word to us. We can be sure. So listen, anyone... Anyone who says to you, oh, the Bible was just written by men, men, humans, not by God. People who say that, listen, they are speaking from a perspective of ignorance. Of ignorance. If you sincerely study God's word and learn about the background, the fulfilled prophecies, the geopolitical realities behind it, the language, the culture, I'm not done yet, how it's historically accurate, the archaeological findings, how it is scientifically valid. You realize that this could not have been invented by human beings. It's impossible. It's too brilliant of a text. No mere human writers could determine what we read in the Bible. It is God's word to us. Right? Some, some of the writers were, were farmers. Some were poets. Some were kings. Some were shepherds. Some were fishermen. A doctor. Prophets. Apostles. And yet there is this incredible conformity of message and, and unity that, that, that we have in it. As if one person is writing. And of course there is one person writing. And that's the Holy Spirit. He just spoke through all the writers the way he willed. Just like God speaks through you and me. He speaks through your personality when you're at work. He, he speaks through your testimony. He speaks through your words. We're all different people, but we have one purpose, and that is to glorify God with our lives. And this is what always amazes me about the Bible. Right? It is so deep that an elephant could swim in it. And it's so shallow that a child could wade in it. Kind of neat. That's God's amazing word. Nothing quite like it. And it invites us to come and to read it. It is the most important book in the world to read. And then you have my four books after that. It is the most important book in the world to read. And we need to read it. This is a true fact. All over the world, there are Bibles. There are Bibles. And they still outsell all other books, even Harry Potter books. And they sell a lot. I think, intrinsically, people know that this is a book unlike any other book, that it is a unique book, and that it changes lives, that it's knocking on the door of their soul, to pick it up and to look at it. The Bible has a dynamism that no other book has. Charles Bradlaugh, he was um, actually a quite famous debater in the UK, and um, he was a, a, a very strident and aggressive atheist as well. So he was a prof, he was a writer, very smart smart man. And he challenged another man by the name of Hugh Price Hughes. That's quite the name. Hugh Price Hughes. He challenged him to a debate on the claims of Christianity and the Bible. And so Hughes was not really a scholar, but he did have a good grasp on the Bible. And he had a very intense belief in the power of God through the message of Christ to save and change lives because he had seen it happen. Um, Hugh Price Hughes spent much of his days in the slums of London serving God in the early formation of the Salvation Army. But Hughes was not a debater. This is the problem. When you go up against a debater, you need to know how to debate because they have skills that they will use against you and you'll get all confluffled ke- 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 and, you'll, and you'll know what you want to say but you can't think because they just keep coming at you. So Hughes is not a debater and Bradlaugh. Is a, is, a, is a great debater. And um, Bradlaugh had actually embarrassed many a preacher, embarrassed many a preacher and defender of the faith. So people start to, uh, started to feel sorry for Hugh Price Hughes because they felt he didn't have a chance. So what happened? Well, Hughes knew that he had to come at things differently. He was not a debater, so he said, you know what, I've got to come up with something to, to come at this guy that I can get him. So he came up with this. He said, he proposed to Bradlaugh that they both bring to this debate some proof of the fruit of their beliefs in the form of persons who were influenced by their respective teachings, whose lives were changed from sin and darkness to hope and redemption. And Hughes said to Bradlaugh, I challenge you to bring 100 people, 100 people, and I will do the same. Then he said, if you can't find 100 people, then just bring 50. Then Price Hughes said, if you can't find 50, I'll be satisfied with 20. Just bring 20 people. 20 people who will be able to come and say that they have joy and peace and hope and meaning because of your atheistic teachings, Mr. Bradlaugh. If you can't find 20, bring 10. If you can't find ten, bring one. One person who says they have peace in their life, meaning, direction on account of your teachings, Mr. Bradlaugh. Charles Bradlaugh withdrew his challenge to debate Hugh Price Hughes. True story, look it up, it's fascinating stuff. You know, with all the hurricane activity that's going on down south, did you realize how many people who are not Christians are quoting the Bible, quoting the Bible about the last days and the end of the world and Armageddon and all that kind of stuff? They're not quoting the Lotus Sutra or the Bhagavad Gita or the Koran. They're quoting the Bible, the Bible, God's Word. God's word somehow stirs our conscience because God's image is impressed upon us, right? and there's that knock on our soul to pick up that book and to read it. To read it, people want to know what the future holds. Where are we headed? Same thing happened after 9/11. Right? A few Sundays following that event, churches were full. People are looking for answers. They weren't just Christians. We don't know the future. So why does the Bible know? Because it's God's word to us, right? To you and to me. He sees the future. He knows it. And it's his word. Of course, there's God's general revelation that he speaks through creation and through our conscience. And all over the world, people have a conscience. And he does that so that people are without an excuse, right? Romans 1 2. And he reveals himself uh, through all that we see. Trees, flowers, skies, the cosmos, seasons, day, night, our bodies. Just like the painters reveal something of themselves and who they are through their paintings. But also there's God's special or specific, it is known more so as his specific revelation. And we get that through his word and through his word made flesh. Jesus, who came to die for sinners and to show us what God is like, who he is. He said... I and the Father are one. So to see Jesus is to see God. So the Bible is God's word to you and me. He is the author. He inspired its content, its message, its unity, so we can put our faith in it. And as we read it and obey it, there is growth, there is direction, there is joy, there is blessing. That is why God's word is so vital and unique to us. Quickly, secondly, it is also because it is infallible. It is God's word to us. It's inspired. He gave it to us. But it's infallible. That means it's without error. There are no errors in the Bible. Hallelujah. 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 We don't want to pick up and read a book that our soul needs to to get right if there's errors in it, right? Now, I'm not talking about a typo here and there. But in terms of its reliability of message, right? No errors. Have you ever known God to make a mistake? No. Oh, sometimes in our frustrations, yep, in our disappointments, yep, in our limited wisdom, yep, we question God, we say, God, why? Why that family? Why are you allowing this? This makes no sense. What good can come of this? We start to wonder, God, are you are you really in control? Does the gospel really have power to change lives? We doubt. We doubt. But God never makes mistakes. And he didn't make mistakes with his word, even though it came through us through human agency. The canon of scripture was completed about 2,000 years ago, And have you ever noticed how the Lord hasn't come back with an addendum to his word? He hasn't come back and said, you know what, I forgot something. Write this down. (laughs) Take note. No. His word is final and complete. No revisions, no corrections, no additions necessary. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that comforting and assuring? Jude calls God's word the faith once delivered. Once delivered, once and for all, final the way it is. Timothy wrote, we'll put another scripture up there. Maybe I can get away with squinting. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Let's read this together. For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ah, yes, another scripture worth committing to the memory. The reasons God's word is so useful is because it is perfect. The word inspired in the Greek gives us the picture of something being breathed out, being breathed out. So just imagine God breathing out through the Holy Spirit and as he does, his word comes into being through the pen of the writers of the Bible. It's fascinating stuff. And the belief that the Bible is God's word and that it was infallible is what's guided Western civilization for years and years, my friends. Years and years. But in recent times, the Bible has been under attack in many ways. We now have access to different so-called scriptures and writings and teachings. And people are wondering which way is right. What's the path to salvation? What is true spirituality? And a lot of people, especially in a country like Canada, that is... um, I mean, there are a lot of different religions in in this country now. And they're infiltrating in schools and and, and in all sorts of areas. And um, a lot of people, a lot of young people are really not sure what is the true way, what is the true path. And then they say, oh, maybe we should just count them all equal and true. Then we won't offend anybody. And now as a result, culture is not comfortable or is uneasy about saying that the Bible is solely the Word of God, that it is solely truth. Times have changed. Where do the wheels fall off? Well let's go back to the seventeenth century. In something called higher criticism. You ever hear of that? Higher criticism? It was a movement of rationalism and naturalism that doubted the existence of the supernatural and miracles so they said for every effect there must be a reasonable cause or explanation so this was a theory a philosophy a way of thinking that began to take hold and then somebody had a nifty idea and they said oh, let's let's apply this criteria to the bible and so they proceeded to find out not the supernatural origins of the Bible, but the natural origins of the Bible, the secular origins, we, we might say. And so they noticed, for instance, that there are various names of God for God in the Old Testament. Almighty, Jehovah, Lord. And you and I would say, well, you know, that's different names of God. That's, that's different ways of referring to God, of who he is, his power, whatever. But not these people who started to pick apart God's Word. They said, look, there's, there's two or three gods. The writer must, you know, think that that's the case. Maybe he's confused. I wonder what source he got. He must have heard this from another person. But how can they be sure? See, we can't trust this. And things went from bad to worse. And so in the long run, they were simply saying that there must be a secular origin, you see, or source as to why the Bible is written the way it is. They don't look at it. They, they never looked at it as a holy book inspired of God. And so this doubt became attached to God's word. And we're sheep, right? The, Bi- the, Bi- the Bible says we're, we're, we're sheep. And we easily follow people. We easily follow things. And sometimes the things we follow are not good for us. And so people began to believe in what this movement was saying about the Bible. And these people were doctors, and they were teachers, and they were lawyers and politicians. And then came the Jesus Seminar people. Anybody hear of those people? So-called New Testament scholars, so-called, who started to color-coat the Gospels. They teach that the Lord surely said and did what they marked in blue, But he couldn't have said and did the things that they've marked in pink. And these things in yellow could be true while these things in green were likely made up by the disciples. And they went throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and they made all these color codings. In the long run they're saying we can't trust the Gospels. And again, you and I think this is crazy but people buy in. People are sheep. They follow. And I would argue that today higher criticism is exactly what secular Humanist and atheistic profs are teaching at universities across this land. This is the world we live in. Yet the Bible, the Bible still stands tall today as it ever has. It will never go away and it will never cease to be anything but, number one, inspired of God, God's Word to us, number two, infallible, lastly, thirdly, God's Word is vital and unique because it judges our hearts. It lays open our inner life. We can fool people. We do it all the time, and none of us are perfect. Praise God, right? Praise God that none of us are perfect. Listen, if you're perfect, I don't want anything to do with you. (laughs) I'm just telling you right now, if you're perfect, I don't want anything to do with you, because I'm not. Right? But we can look one way to others. But when we look into God's word, the mirror of scripture knows the real way. Uh-huh, you dig? Yep. Yeah. it knows the real way. And it reflects back to us who we truly and really are and where we're at, right? And this gets us back to Hebrews 4, 11 to 13. These verses tell us that we can trust God's word and that is why this passage is here. When we come to faith in God, right, we find rest. We find rest spiritually because we're at peace with God. And then we have the peace of God. Right, We're justified by our faith in Christ, Romans 5. But the Israelites, going back to them, they could not enter the rest that was the promised land, Um, and that time of blessing because they did not put their faith in God's promises. His word. They followed the path of Adam and Eve by doubting the goodness of their God, Yahweh. Israel should have followed God's promises and his word. They should have. It's where we find faith. Paul says in Romans, faith comes from hearing, from hearing the word of God and Israel heard that word. The instruction was loud and clear. It usually came through Moses, and they had no excuse. But they just doubted. They just plain old doubted, and they paid for it. Is there a newborn baby here? I see it. A, a very you know looks like it's fresh out of the crate. This looks pretty young. Is a boy or a girl? girl? A girl. And what's her name? Gemma. Gemma. Hi, Gemma. I'm going to use you as a sermon illustration. <laughs> So, um, Israel doesn't listen to the Lord and he says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Just imagine that, that young child, that young baby, got to wait till their 40th birthday. that will be much older too. But the child, when it turns 40, then they can go into the promised land. That's a long time to be wrong about the word of God, right? Israel heard, but they didn't obey. I'm coming to the end. Guy went to a dentist. This is a true story. Guy went to a dentist. And so the dentist examined him, and the man had some cavities and whatnot. And so the dentist gave him some freezing and then he left the room. Then he came, then he came back in and he found the patient handling his tools. And the dentist says, You know, what are you doing? Right? He says, first of all, he says, These tools are very expensive. And secondly, They've been sterilized. And he says, what are you doing with my tools? He says, well, he says, there's some teeth that I don't like in my mouth and I want to have them taken out. So I thought I'd do it myself. Right? True story. And we go like that. You know, we look at that. We go, this is absurd. This guy's crazy. But, you know, try to transfer that image back to God's word. We kind of do that in a sense with God's word, don't we? Here's what I'm talking about. We come across something and we read it, and it speaks to our hearts like a sword that cuts joint from bone or marrow, uh, divides soul from spirit, and that command or that principle or that precept is uncomfortable. And it's like we think, man, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. You ever come across that? where you read something and you're deeply convicted and you just wish it wasn't there. You wish you could carve it out. You wish it didn't exist. You wish you could remove it from the Bible, but you can't. It's there, right? There's sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with. I don't like the fact that sin resides in me still. It's not good for me and it's not good for others around me, right? But how could we have known That, if it weren't for God's word, that shows us this, and that judges our hearts. And uh, I want to close on the Gideons, what they put inside their Bibles. So we've gone to a hotel, and you look in your drawer, and most often, uh, I don't know if it's everyone, but a lot of them, you'll open the drawer, and there's a Gideon Bible. There's a Gideon Bible there. And you may be aware of this, but if not, the preamble of their Bibles, and I'm going to end on this, and they're talking about God's word, this is listed inside the front flap of the Bible. They say Christ is the grand subject. They're talking about the the words of God. Christ is the grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, read it frequently, read it prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, and the river of pleasure. Owned it is riches, studied it is wisdom, trusted it is salvation, loved it is character, obeyed it is power. I know this: God's word, His living and active word is saying something to each person here today. It's saying something to you today, isn't it? It's speaking to you. And where the Israelites got it wrong, may we get it right all the more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we said before, we're so thankful that you've given us your word. We would be lost without it. But Lord, you've given us your word and unless we know you, we are lost. And some of us, maybe we don't read enough of it. Maybe some of us, we read a lot of it, but we're not living it. Maybe some of us have no idea what's been talked about today. I don't know. But Lord, you can reach, reach everybody. And you can convict us where we need to be convicted. I just pray that as we crack open our Bibles, Lord, that you would lead us along, that you would make that moment of our day precious, non-negotiable, a blessing, that we may know more of you, have more of you, so that we can live more for you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.